Okay, so this semester we have been talking about anthropology. What's anthropology? The study of man, mankind, and, uh, and so along with that, uh, part of the essential nature of man post-fall, uh, we've been studying hamartiology. What's hamartiology? The study of sin, all right? So we've studied anthropology, the study of man, hamartiology, which is the study of sin, and we're moving into soteriology. What's Soteriology. The study of salvation. Now, typically, whenever you look at the study of salvation, what people want to talk about is they want to talk about uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection. They want to talk about uh, justification by faith. They want to talk about various atonement uh, theories, uh, penal substitution and ransom theory, all of these sorts of things. And yes and amen, we're going to get to all of those kinds of things. But what we want to do first uh, in this class is we want to give kind of more of a macro plan of redemption. We don't want to just start in the middle of God's story uh, with the most important thing, which is the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the most important, but it's not the beginning of God's uh, plan and how He redeems His people. So what we want to do is kind of give a more big-picture perspective on that. So we began by talking about the kind of meta-narrative of Scripture, the big overarching or undergirding story of Scripture. And so we talked about this, uh, uh, this concept called the kingdom. Uh, and, uh, and so we saw that the gospel really is the story of the kingdom, that God is a king and he has come to establish his kingdom on earth. And so we talked about that. And then within this storyline, we're talking about this concept called uh, covenants. And so Zach started that uh, last week. He did a good job uh, from what I've listened to online. And so we're talking about covenants. Now, uh, I don't know if you enjoy dinosaurs as a kid. I did not enjoy dinosaurs as a kid. Some of you know one of my biggest fears in life are lizards. So the idea of like a great lizard, this huge lizard, is terrifying to me. And, uh, but one of my favorite dinosaurs when I was growing up was a brontosaurus. Now, some of you know a brontosaurus actually never existed. Some of you might be conspiracy theorists and think dinosaurs never existed. But regardless, brontosaurus never existed. You've probably heard this story before. Maybe you haven't. Uh, but what happened with the brontosaurus is that uh, a scientist found the head of another dinosaur, simply put it on the body of another dinosaur, and then created their own new species. They took the head of a, a potosaurus, which means like deceptive lizard, and they put it on uh, another dinosaur and then created this new species, and they called it a brontosaurus, and it made its way like all the way into Flintstones, where they had brontosaurus burgers and all those kinds of things. But the, it actually never existed. I think that's oftentimes what happens, though, with covenants. If you misunderstand uh, the various covenants, if you try to put one covenant on top of something that doesn't actually fit, you end up creating this new species. And in regards to the gospel, you kind of create this amalgamation. You kind of create this, uh, this distortion of the true gospel. You create something that wasn't actually there in, uh, in the first place. And so what we're uh, kind of talking about are covenants, and these are the backbone, the skeleton, if you will, of the Bible. The various stories that we see throughout the Bible, uh, the stories like uh, David uh, kind of slaying Goliath, uh, Noah and his ark, all these kind of things put kind of the flesh to it, but covenants really are the bone. They provide the structure, and uh, just like if you were to take a hand and remove the bone so the hand would just kind of droop and, and be all floppy, that's kind of what happens if you just try to look at the stories of Scripture apart from this uh, backbone, apart from this 
skeleton. And so um, I want to just give a brief kind of recap last week for those who weren't here or for those who were here just to kind of remind us what Zach talked about last week. If you weren't here, let me encourage you, go back, listen to that audio. It's posted online. That is going to be so important for the next six weeks or so as we talk about covenants for you to understand we're going to be talking about individual covenants, but you need to understand the theology of covenants in general. And, uh, and Zach laid that foundation last week for us. And so go back and listen to that audio online if you didn't get a chance to do so. He talked about this. A covenant, he gave this definition, is a, an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Kind of more generically, kind of a simpler definition, a covenant is uh, an agreement or promise between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. And he talked about the fact that there are a lot of different covenants that we see in Scripture. A number of them are between people. But what we're talking about in particular are covenants that God makes with his people. And, uh, and so covenants between people, you see these international treaties, you see various clan alliances that one tribe within Israel will make a, a, a covenant with another tribe within Israel. There's these personal agreements where a person will make a covenant with another person. There's these national agreements. Marriage itself is called a covenant. So there's all these different types of covenants. But we're not concerned with these various types of covenants. We are interested only in those covenants that God makes with uh, His people. And so covenants are God's response to sin. We talked about that last week. Covenants are God's response to sin. And it's important that you recognize the emphasis there is on God. God is the one who imposes a covenant. God is the one who reaches out and meets with us. God is the one. So covenants are, by their very nature, gracious God is reaching out and meeting with his people. This is not something that we are doing. This is not something that we are grasping for. This is not something that we are asking for. They're God's gracious response uh, to sin, and they are grounded in his loving kindness. Uh, the, the Hebrew word there is chesed, his hesed, his steadfast love, his loyal love, his faithful love, his covenantal love. That is uh, God's response to sin. It's His grace, His loving kindness, and they're deeply personal arrangements. Uh, that was one of the differences, the, the primary difference between a covenant and a contract is the idea that a covenant, uh, whereas a contract is this sort of impersonal uh, thing, you go and you make a contract on a house or something like that, uh, you're not like committing to be best friends with the seller of the house or with the realtor or anything like that, but a covenant is this profoundly personal relationship. And so that is all by way of recap, what we talked about last week. So if uh, you weren't here, again, go back and listen uh, to that. So there's different ways that we can uh, classify covenants. There's different ways that we can distinguish or differentiate between various covenants, different divisions that you could look at. One way that you could look at that is simply to say Old Testament versus New Testament. Some of you are familiar with the fact that the word testament is derived from the Latin word testamentum, which is a word that means covenant. Even the way that our Bible is laid out, it's laid out between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Now, the problem with that, although that is helpful, the problem with that is within the Old Testament, within the Old Covenant, there's not just one covenant. There's multiple covenants. All of these take place within this one Old Testament. And so it's not really just one covenant 
of the, uh, the Old Testament, there are actually a series of five different covenants. And, uh, and so that is a way that you could classify them. So it's a little bit simplistic, though, a little bit reductionistic to simply say Old Covenant versus New Covenant, because there's not just one Old Covenant. There's actually a number of them. Another way that people tend to kind of break up covenants or divide or differentiate between the covenants is uh, to look and say there's a covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, and a covenant of grace. You see this particularly within like Presbyterian or Reformed uh, circles, uh, denominations. And uh, so the covenant of redemption is this idea that in eternity past, kind of God within the Trinity makes a covenant within the Trinity that he is going to create a people and redeem them. Uh, and then there's this covenant of works that we're going to talk about today uh, with Adam, uh, and that everything else kind of falls under this broad banner of a covenant of grace. Uh, so all of these fall under the broad banner of the uh, covenant of grace. The problem with this, the problem with this kind of way of looking at you have a covenant of works versus covenant of grace is that all covenants contain elements of both. All covenants have some degree of work. Uh, The question is not whether there's a degree of work. The question is, who is it that performs the work? Who is it responsible for the work? In addition to that, all covenants are gracious. We talked about that before. Even a covenant of works that God makes with Adam is prompted by God's grace. And so that's part of the problem with this language of having uh, dividing the entire Bible into covenants of works and covenants of grace is because all covenants have elements of both in it. Another problem is that it flattens out the differences, the individual differences between each covenant. It's kind of like if you ever met somebody who's kind of racist and uh, they meet somebody from uh, Japan and they meet somebody from Korea and they basically just think they're the same person, Right? Uh, They just think they're they're all Asians. They kind of flatten out the distinctives. Now, if you're Korean or you're Japanese, you don't really like that, right? They actually don't like each other uh, all that much uh, historically. And, uh, And so likewise, by simply kind of making all covenants fit into this covenant of works versus a covenant of grace, you kind of flatten out the distinctives. And there are some very important distinctives between each uh, covenant. And, uh, and so when you do this, when you just make it a covenant of works, and then everything else is a covenant of grace, you don't really recognize each covenant within its own kind of redemptive historical uh, perspective and how each covenant is going to relate to other covenants and how each covenant is going to kind of expand uh, upon uh, and build upon other uh, covenants. And, uh, and so one of the things that we want to recognize is there is this, often this element of progression among the covenants, that, uh, that God's revelation to us is progressive, that He reveals certain things at certain times, and His covenants are progressive as well. There is an expansion of the hope. There's an expansion of the promise within each covenant. And so if we simply say there's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace, uh, we kind of flatten that expansion. We kind of flatten that progression, so we don't want to do that. So I think a better way of looking at it is the way that we're hoping to do. And so rather than just simply saying there's an old covenant and a new covenant, rather than simply saying there's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace, instead what we want to say is there are various covenants. There's actually six different covenants that we're going to look at. There are these five covenants that you see within the Old Testament, and there is this new covenant that you see within the New Testament that's prophesied in the, uh, in the Old Testament. We'll see where that's prophesied in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and those kind of things as we get to that. Uh, but uh, rather than simply trying to flatten these all down, 
we want to actually emphasize and kind of relish the, the individual distinctives between each covenant. So there's a covenant that's made with Adam. That's what we'll talk about today. Next week, we'll talk about Noah, then uh, the Abrahamic covenant, then the covenant that God makes with Israel that's called the Mosaic covenant, uh, then the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What's really interesting is not only is this new covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but in a sense, as we'll talk about, this covenant is the fulfillment of all of these uh, covenants. And so uh, we'll get to that. Uh, That's just by way of a teaser. So what we're talking about today in particular, is the covenant that God makes with Adam. Uh, It kind of falls under what's called the covenant of works, as we talked about. Uh, Also sometimes called the Adamic covenant, covenant with Adam, the Adamic, which sounds like a bad word, but it's not. The Adamic covenant, uh, or also the covenant with creation. So all of these you might hear, kind of all of them in general kind of mean the same thing, although there's different nuances to the way that someone might uh, use it. So we're talking about the covenant that God makes with creation or the covenant that God makes with Adam. And, uh, and so there are, before we really begin to explore what this covenant entails, I want to mention the fact that a lot of people don't think that there is a covenant with Adam. A lot of people kind of skip over that and say the first covenant that God makes with his people is with Noah. And they don't see a covenant with creation. They don't see a covenant with Adam. There's a couple of reasons for that. There's actually three in particular. The first one is nowhere in Genesis 1, 2, or even Genesis 3 is the word covenant used. Nowhere is the Hebrew word barit used uh, anywhere in Genesis 1, 2, or 3. We've talked about this a number of times, though, in, uh, in theological equipping, and so hopefully it's something that's drilled down into your mind. Lack of a word does not mean lack of a concept. Lack of a word does not mean lack of a concept. Talk about this all the time. The New Testament never uses the word Trinity. The New Testament never uses the word Trinity, but few doctrines are as essential as that, and few doctrines saturate the New Testament like Trinitarian language does. And so although the word Trinity is not there, the New Testament is dripping with Trinitarianism. So simply the the fact that there is not a word that's used doesn't mean that the concept isn't there. We talked about this when we talked about uh, the issue of homosexuality and and the critique that uh, there's only a couple of passages in the Bible that talks about that. We talked about the fact, well, Jesus never uses the word idol. Jesus never condemns idolatry explicitly. Does that mean that Jesus is approving of idolatry? Of course not. Is Jesus approving of idols? Of course not. Has mankind moved beyond idols, and all of a sudden when Jesus arrives on the scene, idolatry is no longer the fundamental sin of humanity? Of course not. Just because Jesus doesn't use a word, just because the Bible doesn't use a word, doesn't mean that the concept isn't there. And So simply the fact that the, the word covenant is not used uh, in uh, Genesis 1 uh, through 2 doesn't mean that the concept isn't. The Bible does also doesn't use the word king in Genesis 1 through uh, 3. And yet we see that is the fundamental concept that's being laid. That's the foundation that's being laid there. It's dripping with imagery from the ancient Near East of, uh, of monarchy and kingdom and these sorts of things. The Bible doesn't mention the temple, but what's God doing there in the garden? He's dwelling among His people, which is what a uh, temple is. The Bible doesn't talk about blood sacrifice, and yet uh, God makes a covering for His uh, people. And uh, the Bible uh, doesn't mention the Trinity in that context. And yet we have things like, let us make man in our image. 
and, uh, and then we have the Spirit present and the Word of God present. And so simply the fact that the, uh, the Word isn't present doesn't mean that uh, the concept isn't there. So that's one of the, uh, the objections to the idea of a dynamic covenant, the idea that the, the Word itself is not used. Other people hesitate with the idea of the Adamic covenant because they think, well, this is a works covenant, so you're uh, promoting the idea of works-based righteousness. Uh, so you're saying that uh, at some point God makes a, a covenant with people that's on the basis of works, and I would, to, to which I would reply, to some degree, yes. To some degree, yes. There's always works to some degree in each covenant that God makes uh, with His people. Again, the, the problem is not the issue of works. The problem is who is it that's working for the work? Is it God or is it man? Plus, Adam is already in relationship. This is a huge difference between seeing a covenant of works in the garden and talking about works now. Adam is not having to earn something before God. Adam is already in relationship. Adam is uh, in in a position of neutrality, and uh, and so his works that he performs are just uh, kind of enforcing righteousness in him. We, on the other hand, are not starting from a position of neutrality. Right? That's why we talked about homartiology and how, why that's so important for us. We are starting from a position of unrighteousness. And so no amount of works for us are going to be uh, helpful. That's one of the other hesitations with the idea of the Adamic covenant or the uh, covenant of works is that it leads to some sort of works-based righteousness. But we see this is a unique period of time. Adam's in a unique relationship with God. And so uh, some of those uh, concerns fade away in light of that. And then the last one that some people would say that the reason that they object to the idea of a covenant with Adam is because they would believe that the entire concept of a covenant are all post-fall. The entire, entire kind of concept of a covenant are all uh, kind of God's response to sin. We said that was one of the elements of, uh, of covenants or that uh, it's God's response to uh, sin. In response to that, I would say that uh, covenants are uh, conceptually, not just a post-fall reality. After all, marriage is something that's instituted before the fall, and marriage itself is a covenant. So covenants are something that's pre-fall, but as we can expect, because most of history occurs after the fall, then all of the historical covenants are going to be post-fall uh, realities. And so covenants themselves are not uh, something that's only limited to uh, after the fall of mankind. But most of the covenants involving salvation are only going to take place after the fall of man because salvation is only necessary after uh, mankind's fall. Does that make sense? So those are three reasons that some people don't like uh, the idea of an Adamic covenant, a covenant that's made with Adam. Let me talk about why we should uh, see, though, even though this, con- this word is not present, why we should still see the concept of covenant within uh, the garden. So let me give you, I think, six reasons. Six reasons that we, uh, the, we know that a covenant exists within uh, Genesis 1 uh, and 2 in particular, and then moving into Genesis 3. All right, the first one. How we know that a covenant exists with Adam. All the various major aspects of a covenant are present. All the various major aspects of a covenant are present there in, uh, in the garden. Zach talked a little bit last week about some of the different uh, aspects that you would see. There's a preamble, there's stipulations, there's curses, all of these sorts of things. All of the major elements of a covenant are present. There's an agreement that's made by a sovereign, by a king, in this case, God, 
there's a lesser party, that lesser party being Adam. There's very defined stipulations and responsibilities. There's blessings and curses as a result of that. So all the various aspects, all of the things, if you were to say, what does a covenant entail? All of those things are uh, present there in Genesis 1 and, uh, and 2. So that's the first reason that we know a covenant exists, because you see, again, conceptually, you see the idea of a covenant, even though the word is not used. A second way that you can look and you can see that a covenant is present is because God's covenantal name is present. This is really interesting. If you were to, uh, to look at uh, the uh, Genesis chapter 1, um, somebody tell me Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all right? So what's interesting there is you have in the beginning, God. Anybody know the Hebrew word for God there? Elohim. It's Elohim, all right? Elohim is this sort of generic word for God. It's a word that's also used of like angels and those kind of, it just means kind of heavenly beings. But in this context, it's referring to the one true creator, God. What's interesting though, if you go to chapter two, if you were to flip over to chapter two and, uh, and look in, I think it's verse four, something like that. I don't have it in my notes, but two, four, something like that. Whenever it begins to talk about the creation of mankind in particular, it, uh, it adds a word in front of God. That word is in the ESV, at least, Lord, all capital letters. What does that refer to? Anybody know? It refers to Yahweh, the tetragrammaton. Y-H-W-H uh, is how we uh, kind of write it in English. This is the divine name of God, the name that God gives to Moses. Whenever Moses says, uh, what shall I tell my people that your name is? He says, my name is Yahweh. This is his, his divine name. By the way, it was never uh, Jehovah. If you've heard of uh, uh, the word Jehovah, that's simply taking this divine name, and Jews didn't want to pronounce the, the divine name, and so instead they said the word Adonai, which is just a generic word for Lord or Master. And so uh, they basically just took the vowel points and created Yehovah. And so whenever uh, English translators found that, they thought the divine name was actually pronounced Jehovah. No one actually pronounced the word like that. It's probably something like Yahweh, but we don't actually know exactly how it was, uh, it was pronounced. And so we see this there in uh, Genesis chapter 2, this covenantal name uh, of God is present there when God creates humanity uh, and so before that, it's just Elohim in general. And then you see, begin to see this language of Lord God whenever Adam is created. In other words, there is this covenantal relationship that exists between uh, Adam and, uh, and God. And, uh, and so that's the second reason that we can look and see that a covenant exists, because the covenantal name is, uh, is present. I had a, uh, I had a buddy uh, who uh, worked with me. And his last name was Quinones, Quinones. And then I had another buddy who worked with me, and he was really horrible with name, and he called him Chilales, Chilales. And that wasn't uh, intentional. He wasn't trying to be funny. He literally just couldn't pronounce his name. That's what I think of whenever I think of Jehovah. It's just a mispronunciation of the actual divine name, which is probably something more like uh, Yahweh. 
And uh, so that's the second reason that we can uh, know that a covenant exists because the covenantal name is present uh, whenever uh, the mankind is created there in uh, Genesis 2. Whenever the, the narrative focuses in on the creation of man, all of a sudden you start to see this uh, shift in the way that God is referred to in the text from just Elohim, God in general, to the covenantal name, Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. And uh, so that's the second reason. The third reason, you can see all of these different mirror images between the covenant that's made there in the garden and this new covenant. There's all of these relationships. We'll see this with, uh, with each of these. In, in, uh, there's this fulfillment. There's this progression. There's this expansion that takes place where Jesus is going to fulfill all of the different aspects. And then there is all of this illusion that takes place, not like a magic trick, but illusion with an A. There's all this illusion that takes place uh, between the garden and what we see fulfilled uh, in Jesus Christ. So think about this. Think about the temple imagery. We've talked about this before. The garden is a temple. That's, that's what we're intended to see there. It's a place where, what is the temple? A temple is a place where God dwells. It's a place where God dwells. Not only is it a place where God dwells because God also dwells in heaven, but it's a place where God dwells, where man has access to God. And what's happening in the garden? God is walking in the garden with mankind. It's a place where heaven and earth overlap, if you will. It's kind of like a portal, like if you're familiar with like sci-fi and that kind of stuff, it's like a portal. It's this place where heaven and earth uh, overlap. That's what's happening there in the garden. So you have this temple imagery. And then what do we see in the, uh, the new covenant? What do we see? Jesus Christ is the temple. He is the place where God and mankind are reconciled. He is the place where God and man dwell together. And, uh, and so you see this illusion between temple imagery there in the garden and fulfillment in uh, Jesus. You, you also see this establishment there in the garden, the establishment of marriage. And from a New Testament, from a New Covenant perspective, what is marriage? It's a picture. It's a mirror image of what? Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Christ in the church, right? So you see, again, there's something established here in the garden that we see this covenantal aspect, this covenantal language, this covenantal nuance and perspective that becomes clarified there uh, in, uh, in the new covenant, that marriage somehow mysteriously points away from itself and to a greater reality, that is Christ and, uh, and the church. We see the establishment of rest there in the garden, right? For six days God creates, and the seventh day He rests. If you're reading the book of Hebrews, it says Jesus is our rest. Jesus Himself is our rest. So you see, again, you see this illusion and this fulfillment. Uh, you see the establishment of labor, that there is work to be done, what's the work that uh, mankind is called to do in the garden? To tend to the garden, to bear fruit, to multiply, all of these sorts of things we see within the new covenant, uh, all of these sorts of things. So what are we as a church intended to do? What's our mission? Anybody remember? The Parkway Church exists to glorify God by what? Making disciples. What is making disciples? Well, in the garden, you're bearing fruit and multiplying. What are you doing here? Whereas this is a physical reality, bearing fruit and multiplying is a physical thing. It's talking about procreation. This is a spiritual reality. 
That's what we're doing, making disciples. You're bearing fruit and multiplying, not on a physical level, not primarily by means of procreation, although there is an element of that. You're to disciple your kids, but primarily through a spiritual lens that you are to disciple others, not through procreation, but through proclamation. And, uh, and so you see, again, there is, this, uh, there is this analogy that exists between the work that's given Adam in the garden and the work that we are given uh, to do in the new covenant in Jesus. A law is given in the garden. The law is given in the garden not to eat uh, of the fruit of the tree. A law is given in Christ. Jesus gives a new law, the law of Christ. And there's also this resolution that leads to all of the other covenants. So after Adam has failed the covenant, after there is sin that's been introduced, God then makes a promise. And that promise is that the seed of the woman would overcome uh, the serpent, right? That, uh, that he's going to have his heel bruised, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent, which is this sort of allusion to what takes place in all of these uh, different covenants. In fact, you'll see even the language of seed that the seed of a woman, go and read the Abrahamic promise that we'll get to, the Abrahamic covenant that we'll get to, and to you and your seed, to the Davidic promise that to you and your seed will always have a place on the throne, this language of a seed. And then Jesus Christ himself is the true seed. He is the one offspring of Israel. That's the fulfillment. So again, uh, all of these uh, aspects of, the, uh, of what we see in the garden are mirrored uh, and, uh, and fulfilled in Jesus. That's another reason that we could say that we know that a covenant exists there in the garden. Uh, there's other texts even that point to this. This is a, a fourth reason. Uh, Hosea 6-7, I think you have it in your notes. Hosea 6-7, this is, I think, the best interpretation, although the, uh, the interpretation of the, uh, the Hebrew is a little bit cloudy. Uh, but I think the best interpretation here is uh, the way that the ESV renders it. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So as God is uh, revealing himself to Hosea, uh, Hosea uses the language of covenant explicitly attached to Adam. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. In other words, Adam transgressed a covenant. So this is another reason that you could say, even though the word itself is not used in Genesis, Later authors will look back upon what happens in the garden and use the, the, the idea of covenant. That's a fourth reason. A fifth reason, almost done. A fifth reason for this is that the first mention of the word covenant in the Bible actually is in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 6 with Noah, as you would expect. We go from Adam to Noah. The first mention of that is in Genesis 6. What's really interesting is the language that's used there. So let me back up for a second and, uh, and talk about uh, this. So typically what you would see within, uh, within the Bible uh, in all of these other instances, uh, you see this progression where there is an initial covenant that's made. Zach talked about this a little bit last week. And the language that's used is that God is going to cut a covenant. God is going to cut a covenant. Uh, in English, it would be K-A-R-A-T, kind of like the word carrot, like if you're talking about a diamond, although they're not etymologically related or anything like that. Karat, karat barit, cut a covenant. And, uh, and then later, that's the, estab- that, that's the initiation of a covenant. Later, there is this word that is used. It's like Hakim, like Hakim Malajawan, if you remember him. Uh, Hakim, and, uh, and that word means to establish, to establish. So think about it like this. 
you make a reservation, and then uh, oftentimes you will get a phone call that they will say, we just want to confirm your reservation. Or you might call and you want to confirm, I just want to make sure that you actually have my reservation uh, reserved for me. There's the making, and then there's the confirmation. Making is karat, to cut a covenant. And then uh, confirmation is to establish. It's this word, hakim. So there's typically these two different uh, words that are used uh, when God makes a covenant. There's the initial making, and then there's the confirmation. That makes sense thus far? Karat, to cut, to make initially. Hakim, to establish, to confirm. It's a secondary sort of thing. Well, the, uh, and the reason for the language of uh, cut, uh, I think Zach talk, touched about this last week, is because oftentimes what would happen in these covenants, uh, we see it in particular most clearly in uh, the Abrahamic covenants, so we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, is uh, there would be this cutting of an animal in two. You would cut the animal in two, you would lay each side on uh, kind of on either side of a path, and then you would walk in between it, and that would be a symbol, that would be a sign and that sign is basically saying, may this happen to me. If I break the covenant, may I be torn asunder. May I be torn asunder. It's kind of like a, you've heard of like self-deprecation when someone says, I'm horrible, I'm ugly, nobody likes me, self-deprecation. Well, this is like self-imprecation. It's like calling a curse down upon yourself. Uh, it's like whenever you say, uh, cross my heart and hope to die. What's the next line? Stick a needle in my eye, right? The idea there is kind of like, uh, if I'm lying, then stick a needle in my eye. And, uh, and so I read an urban legend one time that there were a bunch of kids that were actually sticking needles in their eye, but uh, that is, uh, that's not true. So there is this establishment, there's this making, there's this cutting of the covenant as a symbol. Uh, may this happen to me. May I be torn asunder. If I break my word, may I be broken in two. That's the idea there. And then there's this establishment. There's the hakim. Well, what's interesting is whenever we first see the language of covenant, uh, the actual word used in, uh, in the text, uh, it is uh, to Noah, and the word there is establish. And the idea there is if it's being established, it's being confirmed to Noah, it has to be made somewhere else. Where else would it have been made? What's well, made in the garden? This is another reason we can say there is this covenant that's, a, that's, that's made, that's inaugurated, that's initiated there in the garden because it's being confirmed. The reservation is being uh, confirmed there in, uh, in Noah. And it wouldn't make sense, though, for God to talk about cutting a covenant uh, within the context of the garden. Why is that? There wouldn't have been the cutting of an animal in the garden. Why? Because there's not death in the garden. There's not going to be this putting to death, so it would have been anachronistic for uh, Moses to have used the language of cutting a covenant in regards to uh, Adam, even though the idea is there, uh, the words wouldn't have been used because that would have been, again, anachronistic. It would have been uh, strange to read about uh, this imagery of cutting an animal in two in a pre-fall uh, sort of uh, condition. So that's the, uh, that's the, uh, the fifth reason that I think you could see that a covenant exists, because the first mention of the covenant uh, is not cutting, uh, which is typically the first thing that you see, but instead establishing something that's already been made. There's a confirmation there in, uh, in Noah that we'll get to uh, next week. Last reason, last reason that we know that a covenant exists, because the entire storyline is centered around two individuals. The entire storyline of Scripture is centered around two individuals. That's Adam 
in Christ. And if Christ is the head of a new covenant, then it stands to reason that Adam was the head of the original covenant. That's one of the things that we need to know about the covenant is it's all about the head. It's all about the head of the covenant, whether it's Adam or Noah or Abram or Israel or David. And the focus is always going to be on failure, the failure of each of these individuals to uphold the covenant so that Jesus's fulfillments, that Jesus's faithfulness would shine all the more brilliantly against the backdrop of disobedience and against the backdrop of unfulfillment that there is, this, uh, th- there is this sort of idea that in all of their failure, there is the need for one who would come and, uh, and would be uh, faithful. And so this sets up this contrast. The entire Bible is predicated upon a contrast that exists between Jesus and Adam, between the first Adam and the, uh, the second uh, Adam. I was talking about this one time in, uh, in Sudan, and we actually had two people on our team uh, named Adam, and it was super confusing for the translator to translate what I was talking about when I talked about the two Adams, because he kept thinking I meant the guys on our team, so he's like, that's not true of that guy. <laughs> he didn't do that, and uh, so anyway, I don't know why I mentioned that, but I just, it, was, it was weird. So in order to understand what I'm talking about here, when I talk about the, the story is predicated upon these two Adams, you have to understand a concept called Typology, typology, T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. It's from uh, the Greek word uh, typos, typos, which is from Romans 5.14. I think you have it in your notes, maybe not, which says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, here's the important thing, who was a type of the one who was to come, who was a type of the one who was to come. So this is not the typical, no pun intended, meaning of type. If, if I were to say that a Prius is a type of a car, all right, what am I saying there? That's debatable whether a Prius is actually a car, but if I'm saying a Prius is a type of a car, I'm meaning that a Prius is actually a car. When we talk about it, though, in theological terms, if I say that Adam is a type of Christ, I don't mean that Adam was Christ, I mean that there is a relationship. There is an analogy that exists between uh, the two. Uh, So there's a technical meaning when we're talking in theological terms for typology. A a type of something, again, is not something that is within the same category. It's something that shares similarities. Does that make sense? So the definition, uh, uh, this is, I think, a helpful definition of typology. It's the idea that persons events and institutions can, in the plan of God, prefigure a later stage in that plan and provide the conceptuality necessary for understanding the divine uh, intent. And so there's three different elements to typology. There's three different elements to seeing this type that exists uh, between something in the Old Testament and something that's fulfilled in Jesus. The three elements are prophetic intent. It has to be something that is uh, intentional, Right? It's not something that we just simply, uh, there's a difference between just an illustration or an analogy and a type. An illustration or analogy can be something that we just see. So we can talk about, uh, you know, may our words uh, be as swift flying as the stone from David's sling or something. That's not a type. That's just an illustration. That's just an, an analogy that exists. A type is something that's divinely intended. It's not on the basis of our inference. It's the Spirit has actually intended and inspired this 
uh, prophetic fulfillment. So it's, it's divinely intended. That's the first element of a type. A second element is there's always going to be this element of expansion. We'll talk about this, this in a second. It's this element of expansion. And the third element is there's this resolution in Christ that uh, Jesus is the grand antitype, if you will. That's the word that's used. In the Old Testament, the, it's called a type. The fulfillment of that type is called the antitype, not antichrist, but antitype. It's the fulfillment of the type. Jesus is the grand antitype. He is the one that fulfills all of the types that you see within the, uh, the Old uh, Testaments. Jesus is the grand antitype. You see a type in the temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is the antitype. He is the true temple. You see a high priest in the Old Testament. Jesus is the antitype of that. He is the true, the final, the best high priest. You see a Passover lamb in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He is the antitype of the typology of the Passover lamb. You see a king. You see prophets. You see priests. You see prophets who speak the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. So again, you see resolution in Christ, and you see this idea of expansion, that the type establishes a pattern, and the antitype fulfills that pattern. And think of even the word fulfill, to fill full. You have this uh, sort of sense in which the, uh, you have a cup, and in the Old Covenant, the type is kind of filling the glass half full. In Jesus, you see it not only filled completely, but overflowing. That's the imagery of an antitype. And so there is not merely a one-to-one correspondence. There is progression. There's expansion of the promise of the hope that we see between the type and the antitype. Jesus is not a high priest in the same way that uh, we see in the Old Testament. Jesus is not a king in the same way that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus is better in all of those different areas. We see this in particular in the book of Hebrews. Let me read you a few passages. I think you have them in your notes. Hebrews 7, 19, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. There's a better hope. Hebrews 7, 22, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews 9, 20, uh, Hebrews 8, 6, sorry. But as it is, Christ has obtained a, a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enact, enacted on better promises. Hebrews 9, 23 through 24. Thus it was necessary for the cop, copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So again, there is this idea of expansion. There's something better about the antitype than the type. The type establishes a pattern, but Jesus is going to fulfill that pattern in a way that's going to expand it, in a way that's going to make it more vibrant, more brilliant, more beautiful, all of those uh, sorts of things. So, All of that is just simply setting the stage for you to understand there is this Adamic covenant. Let's look at the actual text, and we'll see what that covenant actually entails. So, Genesis 1, 26 through 21, we see elements of it here. Then God said, Elohim there, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So you see little elements of what the command is. Uh, that's given, but in particular, you really see this idea of covenant play out there in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So we'll read that. You see there then uh, this language of not just God, not just Elohim, but Yahweh, the covenantal name of God, the Lord God. Whenever you see L O R D all capitalized within your Bible, that means that is where uh, the, uh, the author of Scripture has used the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, Y H V or W H, uh, Yahweh. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord, uh, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So you see all these elements, even in this one little passage, these three verses, 15, 16, and 17, these three little verses, you see all these different aspects of a covenant. You see a sovereign. You see a ruler. This ruler is making an agreement uh, with a lesser, that is Adam, that is humanity. There's divine uh, stipulations. There are responsibilities that are given. And then there's a blessing and a curse. If you fulfill the, the, uh, the covenant, there is going to be blessing. If you fail in the covenant, there is going to be curse. You see all of these different aspects. So let's talk about kind of the summary of the covenant. Um, and you have all of these, uh, I think, in your notes, so you can read along with me. This is the summary of the covenant uh, that God makes with Adam there. So God created the world and human beings, showing that He is the sovereign ruler of all. We are intended to see that. Again, the language of king is not used there. The word king, but the image of king uh, is saturating the entire text. There's no way that you can squeeze, ring out uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and not have just kingdom dripping from it, showing He's the sovereign ruler of all. He created Adam and Eve as priest kings. Uh, so kings, little ambassadors for him, intended to, we've talked about this before, idols, images are, in, are set up in a garden as a sign that uh, the king rules in that place. And, uh, and so God creates mankind in his image. They're little images of him, and they're there as, a, an, uh, as an illustration of the fact that Yahweh rules here. So they're kings in a sense, but they're also priests. Why would we say that? Where do priests work? In a temple, in the old uh, in the Old uh, Testament, kings uh, or priests work in a temple. Mankind is their dwelling in the garden, which is a temple. It's a place where God and man overlap, where heaven and earth overlap. And so, Adam and Eve were created as priest kings, as those made in His image to rule the world for God. They were to extend God's rule over the entire earth. God basically says, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." In other words, make the earth look like this garden. Right? The rest of the earth is not cultivated in such a way as the garden is. Make the earth look cultivated. That's what he is saying. Extend God's rule over the entire earth. Secondly, as God's son and daughter, they would be confirmed in life and righteousness if they obeyed the Lord, but they would be cursed if they transgressed the command not to eat from the tree of the, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, there's a covenant blessing 
and covenant cursing. So we see stipulations, and we see the penalties for breaking those stipulations. Third, Adam and Eve uh, ate. Uh, you might have R, R from the forbidden tree. No, Adam and a- Eve ate from the forbidden tree and experienced the covenant curse as a result. But even so, by God's grace, the story doesn't end there. For the Lord promised to triumph over the serpent through the offspring or the seed of the woman. Again, this is a, a, a imagery that's going to be picked up. Again, we're going to see it over and over and over again to its ultimate resolution. If you were to read the book of Galatians, you would see uh, that the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, not referring to many, that is plural, but referring to one, that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true seed. When you look and say there, there are a number of different seeds uh, that come from Adam. In fact, all of humanity comes from Adam. But there is one seed in particular who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That is Jesus. There is one seed in particular who's going to fulfill the Abrahamic promise. There's one seed in particular who's going to fulfill the Davidic uh, promise. And so the Lord promised to triumph over the serpent through the offspring or the seed of the woman. And the rule originally given to Adam and Eve would be restored through the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman that is Jesus. Fifth, this is why the life of Christ is so important. We talk about just, it's not simply about the death and resurrection of Christ. As important as those are, I could not stress more uh, profoundly how important those are, but we also need to add in there his life. His life, because his life is lived uh, to fulfill this sort of Adamic covenant, this covenant of faithfulness, that he is tempted in the garden just like Adam and yet he is faithful. He's tempted in the desert, just like Israel, and yet he is faithful. He's without sin, and thus he fulfills all the demands of this covenant of works, or the covenant that is made uh, with Adam. And, uh, and so he also never breaks the Mosaic law. We see all these different elements. Again, he's going to fulfill not just one of these covenants. He's going to fulfill all of these sorts of covenants. And so, as a result, the Adamic covenant is fulfilled in Christ. He was perfectly faithful And thus, his righteousness is imputed to us who are in Christ. This is part of where we're going in uh, in the book of of Romans as we look at all of the different examples of where God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is imputed to us. It's counted as being ours. It's reckoned to us because Christ has this, this storehouse of righteousness because he has been faithful unto death. Therefore, his righteousness is imputed to us, which is, again, why not only his death and resurrection are important, but also his life, his life of absolute faithfulness, uh, living under the demands of the law and yet fulfilling it perfectly, which is why we say, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for, all, uh, for his glory. All the promises of God, everything finds their fulfillment. Jesus, again, is the great Antitype. Jesus is the great fulfillment of not merely one of these covenants, but of all of the covenants. The new covenant is the fulfillment and the expansion uh, of all of the other covenants. So now, as a result, all of humanity is represented by two Adams. You are either under Adam and therefore in everything that's associated with Adam. Sin, death, destruction, chaos, uh, all of these sorts of things, curse, or you are in Christ and associated with everything and an heir of everything that comes along with Christ. Life, joy, blessing, all of these sorts of things. So that's the Adamic covenant. 
in its original context and then kind of the prefigurement of its fulfillment in, uh, in Christ. And so I'm going to invite Zachary to, uh, to join us. We'll work through uh, whatever questions you might uh, have.